0: Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I host a discussion with four experts on COVID-19 and the U.S. military. Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of Global Health Policy at CSIS, Mark Kansian, Senior Advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. Christine Wormuth, Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the RAND Corporation. And Rear Admiral Retired Tom Collison, former Deputy Surgeon General of the U.S. Navy and an Adjunct Fellow in the Global Health Policy Center at CSIS. So, Steve Morrison, let's start off with just an overview before we get into the defense aspects of this pandemic. Give us a sense overall of where we, the United States, are and the world is in the course of this coronavirus.
1: Well, we're... Here in the United States and across Europe, we're in a period of sort of wildly uncontrolled outbreak in many places. Obviously, in New York City, in the United States is the most dramatic case, uh, and it's, it's not over. Uh, it won't peak for now, it looks like, a couple of weeks. Here in the United States, we have a, a terrible threat where there are a number of major cities, about a dozen major cities, that are showing steep uh, increases where there's the possibility that we could see major explosive outbreaks in those urban centers. So we have one Wuhan equivalent in New York City inside our borders. We have the possibility of a breakout of roughly a dozen other major urban centers. The US response was quite late and quite imperfect, uh, prone to lots of false starts and confusion around this. There are efforts to try and bring that right, but there's still major problems in having any kind of unified incident command structure at the federal level. Um, There's great problems in still advancing testing, although there's been some recent progress in that area. And people are beginning now to look at different scenarios of what may lie ahead, which obviously the president has has indicated through Tony Fauci, we can anticipate roughly 100 to 200,000 deaths. In this, in this wave. Outside the country, uh, Spain, Italy, other parts of Europe are on fire, and, um, and that remains uh, highly urgent. In Asia, the epidemic in China has been brought to a point where after eight weeks of a colossal uh, and unprecedented quarantine, uh, it's been brought to almost zero new Cases and they're very carefully attempting to reopen uh, society and business uh, there. And there are several other cases like Hong Kong, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, which have had, which acted very aggressively very early by contrast with our pattern. And they are also in a reasonably good position in trying to get control. So it's a very perilous moment right now. India's gone into a 21 day. The lockdown. It's done almost zero tests. Uh, it's ill prepared, and there's uh, quite a bit of a ramp up of infections across Africa, where there's a similar problem of very weak preparedness, uh, very weak capacities for screening and and treating.
0: So, Steve, you run a global health security program, and many folks, as they look at national security issues, you know, sometimes they think about the guns and bullets side, which a lot of us focus on. How should we be thinking going forward? You know, how has this pandemic um, influenced, do you think, how Americans should be thinking about what defense means, what national security means?
1: Well, over the last few decades, we've had multiple experiences where as a country and outside our borders, we've had to confront dangerous outbreaks, dangerous new pathogens. There's been a, a an accumulation of policy and programs within our government that begin to enshrine the fact that in doctrine and in programs that preparedness against these sort of pandemic threats is a true health security matter. But what we have not had is continuity and sustained effort and prioritization and investments in this way. We've had a pattern bedevil us and other governments of moving from crisis to complacency, this sort of cycle in which we mobilize when the emergency is fully upon us, but then as, it, as the threat fades, we lapse into a period of complacency and negligence. That was the central topic of this two-year uh, CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, which Christine has been part of, a very important part of Christine Warmoth, who's joining us um, this afternoon. A pandemic, of course, we haven't seen anything like this, Dating back to the 1918-1919 Spanish flu, this has a scope and a force and an impact that is at a profound level. Pandemics transform history and institutions and norms. And I think if we don't change our thinking and our habit around pandemic preparedness under the force of this pandemic, I'm not sure when we would change. I think that is going to change us profoundly.
0: So, Christine, going to you, you've served at top levels of government, the Defense Department, at the National Security Council. How can you summarize what you have seen both from your past experience planning around global health and other disasters and what we're seeing in this pandemic in the Trump administration?
2: I think, Kath, what I see is sort of a two pronged phenomenon, on the one hand, you know, you do have all of this taking place against the backdrop of the, the cycle of complacency and crisis that Steve just outlined. So I think, you know, it's it's important to recognize that multiple administrations have been caught flat footed by these global health security threats. And that's a long term problem that we have to fix. You know, I personally would like to see us do a 9-11 commission like review after this is, you know, largely over, I think we as a nation need to really scrutinize our response at all levels through that kind of a mechanism, you know, which I think was pretty effective after the 9-11 attacks. The, the other phenomenon, though, I think that we see here is essentially we are stuck in a reactive mode. I think the Trump administration's response to this has been much more reactive than proactive and this is exactly the kind of event that it's very difficult to catch up and get ahead when you start from behind. And I, I think unfortunately that um that reactive posture, fundamentally, I think it's the president who sets the tone and says early on, this is a critical problem, all hands on deck, everyone needs to get to work. Uh, but the other challenge here is, you know, this is where you really see the effects of the high level of turnover that we've seen in the Trump administration, as well as the fact that, you know, many people are new in their jobs, are acting in their jobs. And, and I think that's just not, you know, kind of the best starting point for dealing with literally a global event like this.
0: So, Tom, former Deputy Surgeon General for the Navy, the Navy obviously very clearly in the news getting hit hard in its uh, carrier fleet. And then we assume we're going to see more of that, not only in the Navy, but we're seeing it in some of the other services. What are the big considerations you think are, are going on right now or should be going on in the minds of Pentagon leadership around the health of the force?
3: The health of the force is Always the number one consideration for military medicine, keeping the United States forces healthy. And this is certainly a different situation than we've ever seen before. Military medicine, Navy medicine, Air Force, Army medicine is always focused on having a healthy and able force out to meet the uh, requirements of our country. Usually that means that the force will deploy overseas and will be basically working from a healthy homeland. This is just the inverse of that. There's been much planning. We could go into that later about what to do in these situations. However, we've got the problem of keeping the force healthy to meet our external requirements at the same time, meeting the requirements of the nation as a whole through the uh, defense support to civilian requirements here, such as you're seeing in New York, Los Angeles, and other places where the military is reporting. The aircraft carrier Roosevelt off the the, uh, coast of Guam, which had some infections on board pulled into Guam, the dichotomy is, does that aircraft carrier meet its need to be where it's supposed to be for its deployment, or does it take care of its crew? How do you balance those two priorities?
0: And it seems like so much of uh, what we think about, for many of us who are generalists on military health, we're thinking about traumas, we're thinking about combat injuries. Infectious disease is just completely different. Do you, is your sense that the medical community inside the Defense Department is well prepared for, has thought through infectious disease challenges like we're seeing?
3: Absolutely. Infectious disease is one of the hallmarks of military medicine. Aside from the uh, current condition with the uh, COVID virus, the U.S. military deploys all over the world into areas where they're exposed to things like malaria, the fevers that we've seen in the Middle East, other infectious diseases, and always has the preventive medicine and research backup. To make it safe to go do that. Uh, So infectious disease, preventive medicine, industrial hygiene, those types of things is part and parcel of of deploying a, uh, a healthy force. So it's something that the military focus on a lot. And much of the basic research that's gone into many of the vaccines that we have in our country has come out of military labs. So it's not new, but Uh, Usually when we think of deploying for a military uh, activity, it's usually trauma that we think of first. We think of infectious disease in the preventive sense. We don't think so much in the treating sense. And usually the infectious disease doctors, internists, and uh, intensivists are supporting the surgeons, like you say. So this is completely inverse of what we normally see.
0: Mark, um, Tom's mentioned already this tension or relationship between force health and force readiness. Do you sense that the department understands that tension and are they balancing it well?
4: Yeah, tension inside the department and they're still struggling with it. They have cut back on uh, major exercises. They've cut back on travel. They've cut back on uh, conferences. They're doing remote uh, work, but they've tried to keep the core military training going. So the tried to keep the basic training going and some of the military skills training going, as well as the overseas deployments, at least with the Navy. But now they're running into a situation where there's illness in those organizations and there are calls that the military should apply the same restrictions that you're seeing in the civilian community that would require shutting down military training and basic training and uh, stopping overseas deployments. The military is struggling with that. Last week, the comment of the Marine Corps argued that because the Marine Corps had a statutory mission of being the force in readiness, there was only so much it could cut back on. But I think we're going to see this play out over the next week or two.
0: Mark, um, you know, that makes me think of the problems we have in the best of times, measuring readiness, how to think about readiness, how ready does the force need to be and for what? Is there a standard that you think makes sense to be using with regard to the types of forces we should be prioritizing and what readiness means today versus things like recruit chaining that affect readiness years down the road?
4: I think there were three things going on here. One of them is what you alluded to that is, how do you measure readiness, what the military calls operational readiness. Uh, but there are two other things going on here. Uh, One is just force size. If the military stops basic training, they'll lose 2% of their strength every month. So the force will begin to shrink. The other piece is if the Navy stops deploying ships, then U.S. global presence will decline. We'll still have some forces overseas on permanent bases, but the rotational presence that has been a feature of U.S. military policy for the last 70 years uh, will go away. There is that problem about how do you measure Operational readiness—that is, the what the military says—is the ability of forces uh, to produce the outputs for which they were designed. It's very hard to measure, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And as you scale back uh, training, those capabilities will deteriorate. Now, you know, one month, two months, three months—you'll have some effect. And I think that after about three months, you'll have the effects that we saw in 2013 as a result of sequestration and the furloughs. Uh, And the military called that a pretty big dip, but it was something from which they could recover, although it took a couple of years. you go on longer than that, and the dip could become quite profound.
0: So, Christine, now we get to the walk and chew gum challenge, which is the defense support to civil authorities piece, where there's been um, a significant amount of attention on, of course, federal response in general, um, but also on DOD's role. Tell us a little bit about what this defense support to civil authorities is and how it's been used in the past, and are there left and right limits around it?
2: Sure. Fundamentally, defense support to civil authorities is about DOD assisting state and local governments through the federal government. So, 9 times out of 10 when the military gets called to help with a disaster, it's you it's either a natural disaster, you know, like major hurricanes which we've certainly seen many of, something like an earthquake or tornadoes. And if those disasters are large enough, sometimes the federal government is brought in to sort of help coordinate the response. And the way I think of it is, you know, DOD is frankly, you know, both the largest labor pool in the federal government and also has a large number of very relevant capabilities that it can bring to bear, specialized capabilities. But but in our federalist democracy, uh state governors generally like to be in control of responding to disasters. And so um the, the needle that DOD is usually threading is providing its its assistance in support of state governors and also where DOD is not the lead agency it's usually in support of the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA and you know you saw you saw us really getting into this i mean DISCA has deep roots in our history but in the aftermath of the 9/11 attacks there was a lot of attention on the role that DOD could play the Hurricane Katrina response in 2005 I think was a major wake-up call to the challenges of dealing with a multi-state event. That event uh, showed a lot of weaknesses in how we had unity of effort across a major federal, state, local response. We learned a lot of good lessons there, and then you know we've we've carried those lessons forward in our response efforts in dealing with things like Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast. Uh, several years ago, and then more recently with Hurricanes Maria and Irma. But but this is really, you know, a fundamentally different thing in that it is nationwide in the United States, and it is, you know, global, obviously, at the same time. And so here we are trying to walk and chew gum, continue to have the military be operationally ready, but also be helping out uh, state governors here at home. I think one of the big challenges is we don't have a command and control construct that's really designed to be nationwide. Uh, we created something called dual status commanders. That was one of the lessons we learned out of Hurricane Katrina. This this is a status that allows uh, national guardsmen to both report directly to a state governor and simultaneously report to an active duty commander. That that can work reasonably well in a regional event. Uh, and it does enhance unity of effort, but it's never been used for a na- a national event like we're experiencing now. And I think it will be uh, challenged to provide the same kind of unity of effort that we would that we like and would need to see. The other thing I guess I would say, Kath, in terms of right and left limits, a lot of times in these events, you hear people talk about, you know, are we going to Federalize the guard? are we going to see you know the guard in, enforce martial law? You know the the military is not allowed to practice law enforcement in the United States. the active duty military. the National Guard is allowed to serve law enforcement functions, which is one of the reasons why they're particularly well suited to these kinds of homeland events. You can make exceptions to that under the Insurrection Act, but that is extremely rare. It's certainly not been used in the last several decades. But I think it's important that people understand that there is not a lot of reason to fear that we're going to move into a martial law status here. I think the, um, the DOD leadership very well understands the, that it's important to keep the military out of those law enforcement functions.
0: So, Mark, um, walk us through then. Given that background, what DoD is doing right now, and if you could also just address Christine's point on command and control in particular, what what are you seeing there in terms of the DoD command and control
2: structure?
4: Yeah, I think you're seeing four main elements in the DoD's support to civil authorities. Of the first. And the most visible is the National Guard. As Christine pointed out, there are about 15,000 guardsmen on active duty. And that number is going to rise. But there's a lot of capability still there since the National Guard, both Army and Air Force, total about 440,000. And they've been doing a lot of support kinds of activities in hospitals, transportation testing, and reminding citizens about quarantine. And although they can engage in law enforcement, if the governor directs, as Christine pointed out, the guard doesn't like to do that. And the head of the National Guard, General Langell, has said that he wants to avoid having the guard uh, involved in law enforcement. And the reason is that soldiers make lousy policemen. They're not trained right. And, uh, and as a result, they don't like to do that. But if the governor's direct, the National Guard could enforce quarantines with arrest powers. Uh, DOD's been fighting Supplies to the civil sector, most notably protective gear and ventilators. And with the authorities of the Defense Production Act, DOD is pushing production. And the steel mill spill provided DOD with about $2.5 billion for those purposes. DOD has provided some active duty forces. The most visible have been the hospital ship's Comfort and Mercy. There have also been some active duty field hospitals established, uh, for example, in Central Park in New York City. But there's very little slack in DOD's active duty military health system, It's sized and structured to take care of active duty personnel, retirees and their dependents. And I think that's where their focus is gonna be during the crisis. Finally, there's a lot being done by the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, Although they don't have any organic construction capabilities, it is adept at letting contracts to civilian firms to get facilities built and reportedly, it's looking at building over 300 temporary facilities across the country. Uh, On the question of command and control, I think the one thing I would add is that in a situation like this, it's a very sensitive issue because you have the federal government intruding on the prerogative of the states. Uh, The states and National Guard have made it clear that they want to stay in what's called Title 32 status. They don't want to be federalized into a Title 10 status uh, so that um, it will be difficult to provide uh, a unified uh, command and control. You know, that said, I'm a little surprised Uh, and this is a point that Cath made the other day, that NORTHCOM hasn't stood up some sort of joint task force to handle at least the active-duty military side.
0: So, Tom, you know, given all that we see that is happening today, there still seem to be quite a few gaps, both in terms of the readiness and health side. And then, of course, in terms of the Defense Support Civil Authority side, what do you think DOD has gotten right so far? And where do you think DOD can be doing more as part of its national security role here at home and
3: abroad? Well, going back to what Mark just said about uh, NORTHCOM, uh, United States Northern Command is the uh, combatant command that is in charge of the military in helping the civilian authorities within the United States. And going back to 2009, there was a, uh, a concept plan developed for pandemic influenza planning, which is the model that we've all used for many, many years for how to deal with a pandemic. And in preparation for this and reading back through that, the assumptions made in that document of things that might likely happen of an, affecting the entire country, of uh, limitations of supply, of uh, purchasing of certain quantities of uh, lots of quantities of things. They didn't specifically mention toilet paper. The difficulties with uh, supply lines and personnel available due to illness are all very right on target for what's going on today. So that's fascinating. But in being involved in the exercising of plants like this over the years, uh, I have not seen... These types of plans and major exercise sizes being done that would prepare us for the day. They've been on the shelf. We kind of know what to do, but uh, I'm not sure that exercising in the past has helped us to the present. But having said that, uh, the biggest two comments about DoD support: one is that with a nationalized support such as DoD, which is in limited quantities. The choices need to be made where to best apply that. And the idea of putting a hospital ship with 1,000 beds in New York City that currently is overwhelmed and and getting worse makes a lot of sense. And having that hospital ship feed patients that are not infected with uh, COVID, as far as we know, and take care of basic trauma cases and so on to unload the the other hospitals makes a lot of sense. The reticence that uh, Secretary Esper had made earlier this week, about not giving granularity on which units around the world have been infected, so as not to uh, decrement our ability to uh, defense job overseas, I think is right on target. The difficulty that's faced with the hospitals today, the military hospitals today, is as Mark mentioned, their size basically to take care of the folks on the base, around the base, the retirees such as myself. I live in North Carolina, about 10 miles from Camp Lejeune, which has a military and medical center on board. They're faced with about 45 to 50,000 Marines in the area and their families and retirees and dealing with their illnesses. At the same time, they're deploying their staff to go other places to take care of needs that the country may have. When it comes to calling up the reserves, the Reserve Medical Force, which the Army, Navy, and Air Force have many members of, those people, the medical professionals, all have day jobs in civilian hospitals, largely in places where they may be taking care of their own populations. So the question comes up, who to call up, when to call up, and what is the decrement if we do call somebody up from, say, uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to go work in New York? What's the impact on, on Pennsylvania? I think DOD is doing a very good job currently in terms of maintaining medical capability in the communities in which they serve, being able to deploy within the country and overseas at the same time. And being a little bit reticent to spend all of our reserve capability at all at once early on in this uh, in this process, as everybody seems to think we're still in the early stages of this, so committing everything we have to one location may not be the smartest thing.
2: I just wanted to jump in on that. I had some experience working with the Northcom in the back in two thousand nine. You know when they were doing an iteration of the pandemic planning, and I think one of the challenges that's worth remembering is. You know, NORTHCOM has the lead inside of the Department of Defense, you know, working closely with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, of course. Uh, but but even in those circumstances, frankly, it could be challenging to get the attention of the leadership in the building as well as the other combatant commands that, that in real life would be impacted by an event like what we're experiencing and would potentially have roles to play but but often as steve well knows uh, going back to the the crisis of complacency a lot of those stakeholders inside of DOD don't necessarily give the problem the kind of attention that it would need and then you have to remember again the department is just one player in the much broader federal tapestry that has to be brought to to bear on a problem like this and northcom frankly you know isn't empowered to force the Department of Health and Human Services or the Department of Homeland Security or CDC or other players that are gonna be necessary. You know, that's, that's outside of their scope. So I, I think one of the real challenges for us in developing a national strategy for pandemic influenza, which we actually have on the books as a federal government, bringing forward that incredi- incredibly complex quilt of actors in a coherent way and solving once and for all some of the turf battles, frankly, and budget battles that come into play, uh, that, that has not happened to date. And again, that's why I think something like a 9-11 commission on the backside of this would perhaps force us to face down those, those problems and solve them once and for all. I would not say in this case that DOD is the third line of defense. I absolutely think DOD is in support of FEMA, HHS, but in this case, in a nationwide event that is fundamentally, you know, about a logistics problem, a supply chain problem, a planning problem, a command and control problem. Those are all things that DOD has tremendous expertise that almost no one else in the government has. And, you know, in in all the years I've done Homeland Security and Homeland Defense, I've always been very reluctant to see DOD play a very prominent role, but here, I really think that we need a more coordinated national approach, and I think DOD has a lot of the enabling capabilities that could put that backbone in place, and I don't see it happening. It may be, frankly, at this point, a bit too late.
0: Yeah, and I also honestly think it's a, a foregone conclusion at this point. I'd be shocked, really shocked, if we didn't come out of this crisis with that kind of um, lessons learned document set of recommendations being foisted, if you will, if nothing else, on the government. Mark, I'm going to let you have the final word. What do you think has gone well, and where do you think DOD can or should be doing more than you see it doing today?
4: Well, I'm going to start with reinforcing something that Secretary Esper has said and that Christine had mentioned, which is DOD is the third line of defense here, and its capabilities are much more limited than people uh, appreciate because we have a military that's designed to fight overseas. And you have the robbing Peter to pay Paul problem in the United States. You have the problem that military capabilities are focused on keeping uh, forces deployed and taking care of their own. Having said that, I think that there are a couple things that the military might Uh, do more of. And one of them we're seeing, which is the Defense Production Act, there's $2.5 billion for that in the stimulus bill. And it's a very powerful tool to get uh, industry to produce what's needed. The president did invoke that once with General Motors. And I think behind the scenes, you're seeing more of that. And there should be even more of of that. The other thing is, I'm inclined to say Corps of Engineers is building facilities. But what we are Short of is military or rather medical professionals, and I'm inclined to say, Where is Eric Prince now that we need him? In other words, DOD has been very skilled in getting services overseas to support military forces. Now we need to get services here in the United States and do it aggressively and do it rapidly. Uh, we also need to do it in a way it doesn't ca- cannibalize existing system, uh, existing personnel. But you know, there are people who are retired, retired people who are no longer uh, in the workforce. And we need to get those people out and uh, helping out at medical facilities. And DOD uh, contracting has a lot of experience there, and I think they could bring that to bear also.
0: Steve Morrison, Tom Collison, Christine Wormuth, and Mark Hansian, thanks so much for joining me today. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.